Section 3 of The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 9, June 1896. This is a LibreVox recording. All LibreVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie Burks. The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 9, June 1896, Section 3, The Seaweed Room, by Clarice Irene Klingen. This is the seaweed room, announced the housekeeper, putting a key into the lock. It's been shut up for a long time and will be a bit musty. With this, she threw open the stout oaken door, and we entered a square apartment, darkened by closed shutters and heavy with a strong, pungent odor. As our guide raised a window and opened the blinds, there was a rustling all about us as of the flight of pigeons. This was caused by the fluttering of quantities of dry seaweed, which were festooned upon the walls and over the doors and windows. "'That's nothing but common seaweed,' said the good woman, noticing our interested glances. "'It's used only as an ornament and to give character to the room. All the choice varieties are in these glass cases, and pressed in this pile of scrapbooks, with notes and explanations under them.' "'Did Professor Linwood collect these specimens himself?' I asked." I suppose so. He used to go on long voyages to the tropics and come home laden with new varieties, and then he'd spend months classifying and arranging them. He was a diver in his younger days, and after that made contracts for lifting sunken vessels or exploring old hulks that had money or merchandise on board. He'd put on his diving suit and go down with his man, I've heard tell, and many's the strange adventures he'd had in ships at the bottom of the ocean, so he told me one day when he felt chatty. That's how he first took to collecting seaweeds. He ransacked the bottom of the sea to get specimens, but after his marriage he never seemed to care for it any more. But perhaps all this doesn't interest you. It's the seaweed you want. You can examine it as much as you like. We did so and lingered long, held by the charm of this strange room that was redolent with the mysteries of the great deep, we sat on a couch, talking in low tones and listening to the rustling seaweeds over our heads, our feet resting on some of the same material, which had been fashioned into a rude map that covered the floor and also the divan on which we were seated. The whole apartment was full of it in all forms and phases. A wreath of it surrounded the only portrait in the room, that of a young girl with frank, pleasing eyes and a sweet mouth. The housekeeper, who had excused herself for a few moments, now returned with tea and biscuits. As she poured the fragrant beverage into little fat cups, we ventured to inquire who the original of the picture was. Mrs. Linwood, the professor's wife, replied the woman, giving a quick, apprehensive look at it over her shoulder. Then, replied my companion, it's no wonder the professor took no more voyages after his marriage. I said he collected no more seaweed, sir responded the housekeeper. He made one voyage directly after his marriage and took his bride with him. The vessel was wrecked in a terrific storm, and only a few of the passengers were saved. Mrs. Linwood was among the lost. That was an odd coincidence, that she should be lost and he be saved, I said, half-questioningly. Well, sir, that leads up to the most peculiar story you ever heard. As long as the professor lived, I never dared breathe it, but now he's gone, I might relate a strange circumstance in connection with this room. We encouraged her so much that the good woman began immediately. 
It was not until the professor was nearly sixty that he thought of taking a wife. Then he was very foolish, if I may be allowed to say it, for he fell in love with a little girl only eighteen, and he, being rich, her parents favored the match, though she was much attached to a second cousin of hers, a young fellow in an importing house, poor but with good prospects, and as luck would have it, this cousin was on the same steamer that took the professor and his bride to China, he going there on business for his firm. It must have been hard for the two poor young things to be doomed to such a long voyage under such circumstances, especially as the professor was of an intensely jealous disposition, and forbade his wife to speak to her cousin. But as I said, the vessel ran aground in a storm, and sank almost immediately. Mrs. Linwood was drowned, and her husband came back a changed man, broken in mind and body. He had even lost his interest in his particular fad, and I have seen him shudder at the sight of a piece of seaweed. He locked up this room, and I never saw him enter it again except on one notable occasion. What was that? inquired my companion. Well, you see, not having his scientific studies to take up his mind, the poor man became very lonesome and morbid. He never wanted to be alone, and must needs have a house full of company the whole time. This was easy, for he had a great many nephews and nieces, and they, with their friends, kept us in a state of commotion, especially during the holidays and in summer vacations. One Christmas Eve, his favorite nephew, Jack Newton, came late in the evening, and to save my soul I didn't know where to put him to sleep. He was a merry, rollicking lad of seventeen, and he said he'd sleep in the attic, anywhere so that he got a chance at the dinner the next day, always thinking of his stomach like any healthy boy. The attic was out of the question. Suddenly a thought came to me, and I asked him if he'd mind sleeping in the seaweed room. "'Just the thing, awfully jolly,' said the boy, giving me a squeeze that nearly broke my neck. "'Then not a word to your uncle,' I said, as soon as I could speak. "'Mum's the word,' said the boy with a wink. So I fixed him a bunk on this here couch we're sitting on, and as it was bitter cold, started a bit of a fire in the grate. Then I locked him in and carried away the key, so if by some strange chance— the professor should stray up there late in the evening, he would find the key gone, and probably think it had been mislaid, for it usually hung on a nail beside the door. If I'd known the queer tricks of this room then, as I do now, I'd never have locked the boy in. What happened during that night I got straight from Jack himself. It seems he went straight to sleep, and never woke till the faintest bit of daylight was stealing into his window. Then he was aroused, poor chap, by a low murmur of voices, and sitting up he saw on the hearth two figures talking together, one a girl with long black hair, and the other a young man who held her hands and was bending his face down to hers. Both of them was dripping wet, and he could hear the trickle of the water as it fell on the big stone hearth they were standing on. Their faces were turned from him, but in the girl's hair was tangled a quantity of seaweed. Did I tell you Jack was a plucky little fellow? He was to the backbone. He said to himself that what he saw was an optical delusion, I believe he called it, that there was nobody but himself in the room. There couldn't be, because the door was locked. What do you want? Who are you? he cried, and with that jumped out of bed and came straight towards the two figures. As he advanced, they retreated toward the window, and when he reached the window, there wasn't anything there, 
though the window was shut except for a little space at the top. Well, Jack went back to bed and lay thinking it over for an hour, then fell asleep again. He was perfectly healthy, Jack was, and hadn't much idea of the supernatural. But now comes the strange part of it. For as he was dressing the next morning, what did the boy find but a pool of salt water on the stone hearth and that little hollow you can see from here that has been worn in it, and lying in it a bit of fresh seaweed in which was tangled a long black hair. Then, as Jack told me, his own hair began to rise in good earnest, and he was scared. So that morning after breakfast, he takes the bit of seaweed to his uncle and asks him if he'd ever seen any like it. The professor looked at the piece of wet weed, and his color went like the going out of a lighted taper. It's an uncommon variety, he said, as it's never found except on the bodies of drowned people. Where did you get it, Jack? And he looked at the boy wild-like, for I was a-watchin' of him from the passageway. I found it in my room, blurted out the boy. There was a couple of people in there last night, uncle, dripping wet. What do you mean? gasped his uncle, looking at him strangely. Come and I'll show you, he says, in spite of the fact that I was shaking my fist at him from the hallway. So together they went up to the seaweed room, I following to explain why I'd taken the liberty to lodge Jack there. But the professor never noticed me. He followed Jack into the room, white to the lips, and kneeling down, examined the little pool of water on the hearth. It's seawater, he whispered after a moment. What did you see, boy? Tell me everything. There's nothing much to tell, uncle, went on Jack in his straightforward way. The girl's hair was down her back, all wet and full of seaweed. And see, here's a long black hair in the seaweed I found. The professor looked, then gave a cry, such as I hope never to hear again, and fell back on the floor unconscious. He came back to life, but never was well after it, and he died six weeks afterward. Before he went, he became communicative, and the secret of his wife's death came out. He and his wife were on a small boat, the last to leave the sinking vessel, together with a few other passengers and one sailor. The professor, being a man of authority and a well-known seaman, was in charge of the boat. Just as they were pushing off, they saw a figure clinging to the mast just above the water. It was Mrs. Linwood's cousin and former lover. At this she cried to her husband to put back to the ship and rescue him, and took on so at his danger that the demon of jealousy entered her husband's soul, and he swore it would be impossible to go back, and that to take another person into the boat would sink it. At that moment the mast disappeared, and as it did so the young man sprang into the sea, waving a farewell to his cousin. Then, with one look at the professor that he never forgot to his dying day, she too jumped overboard and probably sank immediately, at least the body could not be recovered. Yes, it was a strange thing, those two coming back, if it was them, to this room. Those who have book learning can make it clear, perhaps, that I'm only an ignorant old woman and don't understand these deep things. I can only tell it to you just as it happened. End of Section 3 Recording by Julie Burks.